Well, good morning again. You know, I want to begin by uh, asking you this, that uh, what do you think of when you hear the word masterpiece? I mean, is there some image that pops into your mind when you say masterpiece? We talk about a masterpiece. We're talking about something that represents a consummate example of skill, of excellence. And, and masterpiece can be singular, can be a masterpiece, or it might be used to apply to multiple pieces of work that have been produced by a certain individual. And, and, and we can speak of masterpieces in the realm of art and literature and music and also the realms of things like architecture and engineering, as well as other uh, various areas of endeavor. So whatever your field of interest happens to be, you could probably name a masterpiece within that field. Something that represents the supreme example of excellence. Now, for instance, if you're into sculpting, what you would have is probably a, a picture of Michelangelo almost certainly coming to your mind in connection with masterpieces. Michelangelo, of course, was that great Italian Renaissance artist whose, whose paintings and sculptures have literally influenced Western art for centuries. The guy lived 88 years, 1475, 1564, and yet his masterpieces still have a significant impact on artisans today. Now, you know, apparently, Michelangelo, his favorite sculpting material was this Caraba marble. Uh, big blocks of marbles are, are hewn out of the mountainside like you see here. But see, from this point on, it's up to the artist. Now, Michelangelo could take one of these blocks of marble and through his creativity, uh, through his great skill, he could turn a, a piece of, of rock into a masterpiece. Like this angel that he sculpted holding a candle. In fact, when he was asked about this very project, he said, well, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And that's the way I think most masterpieces probably are produced. They start with a, with a vision and then they end with a certain result followed, uh, created by the skill of the artist, the concept that he has to bring that about. This morning, I'd like for us to take the concept of masterpiece to a whole new level. Uh, let's consider divine masterpieces. A masterpiece is created by the master creator, God himself. Now, you know, we know that the world, the universe in it, uh, could not exist apart from his creative acts. You and, and, and me, everything around us has been brought into existence, has been brought into being by the Lord God. And as we gaze upon and, and perhaps study these various aspects of God's creation, we're, we're infused with a, with a sense of awe 
on multiple levels. Uh, that's really the thrust of Psalm 19, 1. Because the heavens are de telling or declaring the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring uh, the work of his hands. You know, all creation, including the, the heavenly bodies that surround us, are revealing God's glory and his, his majesty. It all bears witness to his power, uh, to his craftsmanship as master creator. And yet, you know, as, as big, as, as wonderful, uh, as beautiful, really, as the cosmos is, Scripture does not describe it as being God's masterpiece. You drop down to the planet Earth in which we live, and you think about creation here. And God's fingerprints are all over nature, especially as we're able to study it in terms of its organization, design, complexity, as well as just to enjoy the beauty that's there. You can pick any species. Pick, for example, the common hummingbird. Pick the hummingbird or, 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 or just an insect like this butterfly. And, and, you know, we've kind of grown to think of them as rather commonplace, as kind of ordinary things, run-of-the-mill part of our world. But, but you look at each of these closer, whether it's the species of bird or an insect, and we're just blown away by their design and their complexity involving amazing specific attributes of each species and intricate life cycles. It's really no wonder that Paul says to the Romans that for since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We're left without excuse. Well, you know, many is the time I've, I've been out in the woods and I come across these settings uh, that just cause my, they're so beautiful, it causes my mind, my thoughts to turn toward God, just as an expression of appreciation for the, for the, the beauty that's out there. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure that many of you identify with that same kind of experience. Uh, you know, we look around us, and this planet on which we live is just full of examples of wondrous creations of God. Yes, they're, they're full of complexity. They're also full of beauty. And though nature proclaims the glory of God by its mere existence, Scripture does not call nature God's creative masterpiece. Now, if you go to the book of Genesis, describing God's creation of the world in which we live, the first two chapters do indicate that the crowning aspect of God's creation was his design and, and his creation of mankind. Yet, yet I know how it seems easily we, we can lose the awe, uh, the wonder of human life. Uh, maybe it's because we live in this crowded world and, and we've got all these long checkout lines and jam freeways and, and certainly because of the effects of sin upon us and uh, our fellow humans. It's pretty easy to become desensitized to the marvelous complexity and depth that's wrapped up in the creation of every human being. 
And we shouldn't let that happen to us. Uh, the apex of God's creation is man. Every, we see that every time a baby enters the world, sitting there waving its arms or looking around with its eyes wide open, its mouth wide open. And, and the question comes to mind, that, well, wait a minute, why would you call the human being the apex of God's creative work? Well, to be sure, that newborn baby, that young child there, is a physical wonder. I mean, with an incredible complexity interwoven into that single being. But far beyond the wonder of, of our physical bodies as human beings is the fact that we are created in the image of God. And, and, and that's what distinguishes human beings from other creatures. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Of course, to be in the image of God does not mean that we look like him. Uh, rather, of course, it's referring to things that human beings possessed, such as self-consciousness and self-awareness, along with uh, the power of deliberation, having a will, the ability to reason, along with the ability to make moral judgments, to possess a sense of right and wrong. It means that we can have a true knowledge of God. And at one time, of course, the human race had that right standing before God. It means that we possess immortality in that we have been given a spirit, a soul, if you will, in addition to our physical bodies. You see, none of those things are true of other creatures because we are created in God's image. We should stand in awe of the wonder of the potential that God has given each of us as human beings. And yet, as wondrous as human creation is, it is not called God's masterpiece of creation in his word. What scripture says is this. It is the person in Christ who is a masterpiece of God's creative work. Now, that amazing, uh, somewhat surprising perhaps, uh, perhaps even shocking statement is found in Ephesians 2.10, where we read Paul's words saying that for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The Greek text literally reads, as indicated below there, for his workmanship are we, which is truly significant in that the word order emphasizes the truth that every person who is in Christ has been handcrafted by God. You might be familiar with the noted scholar F.F. F. Bruce, British professor, author, scholar, Bible scholar, explains the intent of Paul's words here by the use of this term workmanship. And it's this, he says, the person in Christ is God's work of art, his masterpiece. Now, there is not a more exalted or a more elevated description of the believer anywhere 
else in God's word. However, before you let this go to your head, remember verse 10 is preceded by verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that you may boast. No one can boast as a matter of fact. Purely as a result of what God has done, we are now in Christ a new creation, a masterpiece of his creative ability. We have been given the gift of new life, the gift of salvation, something that we did not accomplish on our own, nor is it something that we can hang on to through our own efforts. It's all God's doing. It's all because of God's grace. You know, to think of our new status as, as something that perhaps we achieve or that we maintain in our own would be just like that block of granite taking credit for turning into Michelangelo's angel. God's ultimate creation is a fallen human being who despite being dead in transgressions and sin has been made alive in Christ. We are masterpieces because we have undergone a second creative work by Christ. We have been handcrafted by him. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In other words, God has thoroughly remade us. He's done something astonishingly new in believers. In John 3, 3, John call, uh, Jesus calls this being born again. There is a greater work than the creation of the heavens, than the wonders of nature, and even original man. Because it was so costly to God, and it involves the unparalleled power of the resurrection. Jonathan Edwards reflected on this truth and notes that spiritual life which is reached in the work of conversion is a far greater and more glorious effect than mere being, than mere life. So do, do you know Jesus as, as your Lord? Do you know him as your Savior? If so, then you are a masterpiece being crafted by Christ. And, and it's important that we know this. We don't lose sight of that. And for one thing, being crafted by Christ demonstrates that you are valued in God's sight. You are of untold worth in God's sight. Now, in a fallen world that is hostile toward God and his people, in a fallen world that, that seeks to discredit, to persecute those who name Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, you need to remember that it is God's evaluation of you that really matters. It doesn't really matter what others may think or what others may say, nor even what you might think or I might think, apart from Scripture. 
You know, there's a, a lot of talk these days about the need for proper self-esteem, for the amount of proper self-worth. And unfortunately, that usually amounts to a form of a secular ego inflation, humanistic attempts to overstate a person's power of self-direction, of self-determination. Now, again, I mean, I can understand why it is so important in the minds of, of the man or, or the woman who, who doesn't know God through Christ, because really, after all, that is all the hope they have. That is where their hope in this life is forced to reside. But as a Christian, if you begin to understand how much value God places on his children, his masterpieces at Christ, then you don't need to convince yourself, you don't need to convince others of how wonderful you are, how powerful you are, etc. The correct scale of personal evaluation, both now and in eternity, doesn't rest upon self-worth self-esteem, but upon God-worth. I know a lot of young people struggle with their self-concept, something that seems to be increasingly difficult in the current era in which we live. They often search for self-discovery apart from their creator. They worry about what their peers are going to think. They strive for acceptance in ways that often lead them into sinful actions, sinful practices. But knowing who you are in Christ, a handcrafted masterpiece, one who lives immersed in Christ's love and acceptance and his assigned worth, is a member secure in God's family, tends to eliminate the self-esteem deficient or deficit that overtakes so many people today. And of course, it's not just young people who struggle with this. You know, many adults wallow in their past failures, harboring feelings of worthlessness, self-depreciating to the point of, 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 of absorbing blurry and, and, and misguided beliefs concerning their new life in Christ. As one who is being crafted by Christ, keep in mind that your status as a masterpiece is secure. But the process is ongoing during our lives, our present lives, as we undergo transformation. You know, Michelangelo chipped away at that shapeless rock, liberating, he said, an angel from that stone. Remember that you're in the hands of the master sculptor who is shaping you into Christ's likeness and will ultimately present you as a finished product. And you know what? He has never thrown away a rock on which he has begun a masterwork, and he never will. A second thing that I'd like to point out this morning connected to your handcrafted status that you can't forget is that there is a vision, there is a purpose behind what God is doing in your life through Christ. 
God's masterpieces are not designed to be set on a shelf somewhere and just admired. Rather, he's created us for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here lies God's plan, God's purpose for his masterpieces. We, we, are, we are crafted by Christ to live a life of eternal significance. Through our, our new birth, through our new creation, God's Spirit directs us in that journey. Saved through Christ, we embark on a pattern, a way of life, under His direction and on a course that He has designed for us. Now, that's amazing, is it not? God takes these rough, crude sinners, blocks of dead marble, if you will, like you and me, dead in our trespasses and sin, and produces vessels fit for the master's use. Sin-marred, defective material is transformed by God into useful instruments of his righteousness. Now you can count on it. God has placed you where you can best serve, where you can best honor him in the way that you conduct your life. In essence, the context of your life, whatever that might be, is your God-given, eternally significant job description. You know, as I noted earlier, in the case of Michelangelo, man-made masterpieces may have an impact on others for generations, even centuries. But they're not permanent. They're not forever. They're going to fade with time, and ultimately, they're going to disappear from the scene. Not so with God's masterpieces. Their impact is eternal in nature. Their impact has eternal significance. You see, walking in good works allows God to touch other people through you while simultaneously working in your life and on your heart. Crafted by Christ means that we're no longer left to ourselves, left to live for ourselves. We're no longer primarily focused on looking out for our own personal gain, or our own, our own personal pleasure. We're new creatures in Christ, plugged into eternal things, and able to see life from that eternal perspective. See, in all of creation, there is nothing more exquisite from God's perspective than using his workmanship, crafted in Christ Jesus, to accomplish his purposes now and forever. Yeah, indeed, we, we are crafted by Christ to live a life of eternal significance. And a huge part of that job description is directly connected to our activity as a, as a member, as a part of Christ's body, the church. You see, being a part of being crafted by Christ 
is the fact that he has given you and he's given me specific gifts so that we're able to live out our lives for his glory. You know, unfortunately, there exists a surprising number of Christians who do not realize that every believer, including themselves, has been specially gifted in this way, a way in which they are equipped to walk in good works alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. See, too often, I think, believers compare themselves to others in the church. And they decide, well, you know, they just don't have what it takes to make any significant contribution to the overall purpose of the church. Comparing themselves to others, they see themselves lacking. You know, when I was growing up, everybody participated in some kind of team sport. I mean, even if a guy wasn't particularly interested in sports, they had to play some kind of sport and had to play on some kind of team because it was a requirement for the PE classes in school. Now, of course, growing up in Texas, football was and still is the king of team sports. So touch football was the go-to. That was the go-to sport for most PE classes and for recess time as well. But as you know, kids physically mature at different rates. Whether it's elementary school all the way through high school. And for most sports, a kid's size was directly proportional to the success that a kid enjoyed in a certain sport. Now, that's especially true for football. I mean, I remember this, this kid in the eighth grade could have passed for an adult. So, naturally, he was always captain of the team. And he appointed himself as quarterback. And he was pretty much a one-man show in terms of moving the ball. The rest of us were just kind of hanging out there like set decorations just to give him applause. And during high school, frankly, I, 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 was, I was rather small for my age. I didn't really grow until I got out of high school, oddly enough. Uh, so when these designated team captains were alternating choices and picking you know, their teams, you know how that goes, that was usually close to the bottom of the list, maybe last to be chosen for the team. I mean, nobody picks us little guys when you're choosing up sides for, for football teams. That's, that's probably why I, I get such a, a kick out of that commercial. Have you seen that commercial with Charles Barkley in it? This commercial here? Huh? You've probably seen it. Here you got Charles Barkley. He is a Hall of Fame basketball player from Auburn. And he, in this commercial, he's playing in a, in a pickup basketball game with, with a bunch of kids. And so those two kids with their backs to us, they're... They're choosing up sides here, and the girl gets to choose first. And guess who she chooses? Guess who she chooses? That's right. Barkley. Yes, he screams. Yes. Then he turns to the little kid next to him and says, I told you I still got it. Well, you know, I think sometimes within the church, you might look out and think that everybody looks like a Charles Barkley in comparison to yourself. I've talked to plenty of Christians 
who, over the years, that they think they're like this little kid in the green shirt when it comes to serving the Lord. Well, please don't make the mistake of importing a playground mindset, playground thinking into your, your life as a man or woman in Christ. Remember, in Christ, you are a masterpiece crafted by Christ and specifically designed and specifically gifted for ministry. God has not only given you an eternal job description, he has given you a, a certain spiritual gift to serve him effectively and to make a significant contribution as a valued part of the body of Christ. Now, when he explains this to the Corinthian believers, Paul didn't use the illustration of team sports in connection with the proper functioning of the church. He used the illustration of the human body. And he tells them that for even as the body is one, yet it has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one. They're one body. And, and maybe God shows this body illustration because we're very familiar with the body. And the aspect of the body that stands out preeminently, of course, is the head. The same is true for the church. For the head of the church is Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, I mean, excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, meaning by that that Jesus is supreme in rank over all of creation. For by him, he says, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the reference to the resurrection, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So, so Christ is the singular sovereign head of the body. And he doesn't share that headship with anybody. There's not a head of the church in heaven and a head in Rome or in Washington, D.C. or in any local church. Though, for various reasons, individuals often try to become a second head or at least a co-head with Christ. In fact, you know, all of us are, are tempted to subtly assume a co-headship position uh, with the Lord. I mean, when we gear our prayers toward merely trying to secure his approval for our plans, <laughs> we just want to stamp, here's the paper, sign it, let's move on. You know, a lot of prayers are offered primarily in the spirit of just getting God's endorsement. But taking our direction from the head what that does is it allows us to carry out the design of God's plan and the utilization of our spiritual giftedness. And that process 
demonstrates a relationship of dependency among all of us who make up the other parts of the body. And, and, and Paul pictures that very well in Ephesians 4. He gives us the picture there. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, so while the body is dependent on the head, the head needs active body members to implement his plan. You know, I think a good way to visualize the relationship between the head and the proper working of each individual part of the body uh, can be taken from farm life. I mean, how, how many here lived on a farm or live on a farm? Oh, got a few. Okay. Hey, uh, did you ever raise chickens on that farm? Did you ever eat those chickens? Just asking. No hands going up. Let me ask it more pointedly. Has anybody ever seen what happens when a chicken's head is chopped off? Anybody ever seen that? Give me a hand. Somebody. Surely. Okay. All right. See there. I knew you were holding back. Oh, I tell you. When I was around four or five years old. I lived on a farm. And, and many's the time I saw my dad or uncle go out and chop a chicken's head off. And then, then that chicken or a rooster, a lot of cases it was a rooster. That's how you got rid of extra roosters. They'd be prepared for a Sunday dinner. Now, you know, that's one of those images that was vividly burned into my mind. <laughs> I can still remember it as though it was last week. Um, you know, actually, I kind of look forward to those times. I was kind of excited when I knew there was going to be something wrong with that. I mean, I, I was a twisted kid, maybe Buffy. I don't know. I don't know. But it was kind of exciting because you never knew. Because after the axe falls, you, you've got a head. Yes, you still have the head. You still have a body. But there's a huge change that takes place when the body is disconnected from the head. The body goes crazy. And it starts flopping all around. And it can even fly short distances without a head. I mean, no direction. Just gone nuts. Non-believers and believers without Christ as head end up acting just like a chicken with his head cut off. You remember in John 15, we're told that without Christ, we can accomplish nothing? To bring about the dynamic picture of Ephesians 4, God needs every believer, needs every member of the body to function as per instructed by the head. Each of us is unique. I realize that. All of us are different in many ways. But to, to put together, we are unified under the direction of the head to function properly within the church. It's just like our bodies, as Paul is trying to illustrate there. It's comprised of a lot of different parts. But together, they work in unison under the direction of the head in order to accomplish whatever task is at hand. Might be eating. 
might be running, might be lifting, whatever. And that's Paul's point with respect to the church when Christ is head. He tells the Corinthians, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Paul's point here is that every single body member is needed. You just think of the simple, simple act, I call it, of eating. We take it for granted. We do it all day. Well, not all day, I guess. But also maybe only some of us do. I don't know. But we eat often, correct? And a lot of working parts involved in that whole process. You stop to think about it. All the way from the coordination needed to deliver it to your mouth, to all the muscles, the parts that are needed to chew the food, to secretion of saliva, complex procedure needed to swallow the food, then digest the food. I mean, really... If you look at it pretty biologically, the simple act of eating your food is not so simple. There, there are a lot of body parts that need to work properly and in synchronization. And, and you know what? We didn't even mention the brain and the nerve messages and the things going on that we can't see in that process. And these body parts don't hang out and say... Arguing about their role in the body. Yeah, I, don't want to, I don't feel like chewing today. But I don't want to swallow. You don't need to swallow today. I'm taking the time off. Every single part participates. And you see really what happens in many local manifestations of Christ's body, many local churches, is that too many of its parts, of its members, just shut down. Uh, they're, they're, they're inactive. Or they're detached from the head. And maybe they didn't realize they were gifted for that kind of service. Maybe they were denied the opportunity to utilize that gift. Maybe they're just not interested in doing it. They'd rather have time off to do something else. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to assume that most of you are aware that Christians do have spiritual gifts and that you know the kinds of spiritual gifts that God has sovereignly placed among each body. But I just want to answer a few questions quickly, general questions about spiritual gifts, in case the subject is relatively new to you. When you think about what is a spiritual gift, we're not talking about natural talent here. But kind of like a natural talent, you need to develop it by using it. They're given as tools for people to, to work on one another, to build up the body of Christ. So you could define a spiritual gift as, as your capacity for spiritual exercise and growth, development. How many gifts are there? Well, if you go through that list of passages down here, you come up with about 16. Twelve of them, body gifts that we would utilize today. Four of them are sign gifts that were used uh, in the past for the transition of... of um, God from Israel to the church as God's medial people. Now, 
some people think, well, I must have been left out. So they asked, do I have a gift? But yes, you have a gift. Scripture says every single believer has a gift. Not just those who are standing up here or, or, or in the limelight some other way. Every single believer is gifted. Every, all believers are gifted people. So yeah, you have a gift. When you get it, you don't have to beg. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to crave it. You get it the moment you come to Christ. You, you get not only that giftedness as well as everything you'll ever need for your development in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you'll recognize it all of a sudden, necessarily immediately, but it's there. You have it. So who, who gets to pick the gift? Well, a lot of people think they get to pick what gift they want. No, we don't. God picks that gift. <laughs> we have no say about it. God picks that gift. And, you know, if need be, we can have a seminar, we can have a class down the road to explain and maybe expand on spiritual gifts, define them and all that, study them in more detail. But my point in bringing this up is because a lot of churches are really headless chicken operations. Um, we want to be one of those, do we? <laughs> um, you know, pastors can, can easily fall in the trap of being this jack-of-all-trades and, 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 and thinking they're the fourth minute, uh, member of the Trinity and, and trying to do everything themselves. But, but on the other extreme, you've got a lot of people in the church that's finding themselves in the trap of being a spectator. I mean, after all, they think that uh, their primary role is to, is to come and watch the, the pros do the ministry. Well, it's not scriptural. You see, there's a huge problem there in that it doesn't matter how good the diet is when you come here if you only sit and soak it up and there's no willingness to do your part then this Ephesians 4 passage is, is not going to be adequately fulfilled. Not going to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about it. It's a good thing that inactivity is not a regular occurrence with our physical bodies I mean, the main point, the main goal of eating is nutrition. And that purpose will be totally scuttled if non-functioning body parts refuse to do it or took the time off. Then they're going to eat for a week. I'm gone. And so as a result, our bodies will become extremely unhealthy. And uh, similarly, I, I think there are many unhealthy churches. There are many anemic churches across the landscape because of these non-functioning parts, non-functioning members of the body. Because when a church is employing spiritual gifts throughout the congregation, believers are being built up, they're maturing, so they can go out and they can make more believers, beget more believers. Without a doubt, uh, Ephesians 4, the best example of that I've ever seen in practice was back at a church I attended in Corvallis, Oregon, Northwest Hills Baptist. Uh, Northwest Hills was a church that began in the living room of one of its founding elders. Along with about a half a dozen other couples that came together for a Bible study. And that study quickly outgrew that living room 
and went on to rent facilities, usually at a local school, became organized as a church. And remarkably, within a period of about five to six years, church attendance reached 1,200. 1,200 people. And throughout that whole time, it had only two full-time pastors. And yet it had a huge college ministry, a renowned discipleship program, a diverse music ministry, youth program that expanded downtown and bought its own facility, family retreats, men's and women's camps. I mean, everything you can think of was happening there. It was alive. Well, with two pastors, that's remarkable. That's remarkable when you look around at most churches today. How could Northwest Hills pull that off with only two pastors? How could they do that? Well, you know the answer. Because everyone was serving. Everyone was involved. God was using everybody, and they were engaged in making use of their spiritual gifts to the fullest extent under the direction of the head. And so it was Ephesians 4, before my very eyes, had a big impact on me. You see, that's exactly the plan for God's masterpieces. Crafted and gifted to be walking in good works. Employing their spiritual gifts for the benefit of all, of one another. And fulfilling the mission assigned to the church by its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the next time you hear the word masterpiece, I hope you will think of yourself and others who have been crafted by Christ for an eternal purpose. That purpose begins here, it begins now. And so may all of us be encouraged to engage in what God has called us to do. He has crafted us, he has gifted us, and continually empowers us to bring about his purposes and his glory as part of his body. And all his masterpieces said, amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be a part of the family of God. What a remarkable transformation has happened to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, I pray that we just don't take that for granted, that we live it out personally, that we appreciate your purposes, that we appreciate your skill, your creativity, your design, your vision for us as individuals and collectively as your church. May we function to your glory as described in Ephesians 4. And Lord, may we be faithful in that cause. May we be joyful in it. As we look forward to your return, let us be found faithful, shining your light, proclaiming your gospel to the world around us, starting with our community and reaching out from there. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.